Welcome to Thesis, a podcast about trends in higher education systems and international spheres, exploring the field of higher education across the world. I'm your host, Kelly Davis. In this season, we've already touched on emerging regional hubs attracting international students from the perspective of India, where policy is pushing for internationalization on campuses. Today, we look at students headed to China from the continent of Africa. With us to discuss these flows is Dr. Benjamin Mulvey, lecturer in Equitable Education Systems and Policy at the University of Glasgow. Ben discusses the context around international student movement between Africa and China, why it's happening, as well as the consequences. I enjoyed speaking to Ben about this topic because he is, of course, knowledgeable about the quantifiable trends and geopolitics at play. But most of his research focuses on the experiences and perspectives of African students who study in China, providing insight into why these numbers are the way they are. On behalf of the thesis team, we hope you enjoy this episode. I am here today with Ben Mulvey, and we are going to be discussing flows of international students between China and Africa which is a really interesting topic from both the perspective of just generally speaking, higher education and the flows of students, but also from a geopolitical standpoint, which we seem to be talking a lot about in this um, in this season. But I am really enjoying it and I hope everyone else is, too. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we're going to kind of set up the context first, as we normally like to do on thesis, and talk about the the students in sort of a quantifiable manner. So how many students are going to China from Africa and vice versa to start with? Yeah, that sounds like a simple question, but it's actually a little bit tricky because of the pandemic. So China opened its borders again to students a lot more recently than most other kind of major destination countries. And during COVID, it appears that they stopped publishing those figures. So I can tell you prior to the pandemic, the most recent statistics that I have from 2019, about 2018. So there were 81,562 students from across the African continent studying in China in 2018. That represents about 17% of the total number of international students in China. So they're the second largest regional grouping after, obviously, students from from Asia. Students from, I think, every country on the continent is represented in those figures. Just under 60,000 were on full degree programs, and then the remainder on non-degree programs. So the Chinese government quantifies that slightly differently to, to other governments. Generally, other governments only include degree students in those figures, whereas China also includes students, for example, on on language courses. So that kind of inflates the figures a little bit, but it is still quite a high number. That's kind of interesting. Do you know, I mean, is there a reason why China's measuring this differently, or maybe the rest of the world is measuring Um, differently? I'm not really sure. and I wouldn't like to speculate. I think maybe it's just the fact that quite a large proportion of students are on language courses. Mm. Uh, Also, the language courses are obviously a prerequisite so there's two kind of tracks in China's kind of international education recruitment. So, so there's obviously Chinese medium of instruction and English medium of instruction. Students on the Chinese medium of instruction usually will have to take one year of language classes. So so the, the language classes are connected in, in some cases to the full-time study. So sure. it's maybe a way to include those students as well, assuming that they will be enrolled on full-time degree courses yeah. after the language course. No, that makes uh, sense. I, I worked for a a college that in the U.S. that had something similar. So yeah, the just but that's interesting. Yeah. I think. 
and, and then you know obviously it also could be related to making the figure seem a little bit higher in these kind of studies it's kind of thrown about that china is now the number four destination globally for international students but that doesn't really take into account that a lot of that figure is non-degree students whereas for all the other countries that are included it's just students on degree courses so mm. um, it's not quite that high it's somewhere in the top 10 but towards the bottom of, of the top 10 yeah. uh, destinations but it's it's an interesting statistic. The point is that it's a that the students from Africa are a really significant yeah. piece. And you mentioned that the the other hotspots are coming from other parts of Asia as well. So tell us a little bit about who what is the makeup of the students from Africa from the African continent who are going to China and are in these courses. Yeah, when we look at student mobility between Africa and China, it's kind of a really good example of the way that flows of globally mobile students are diversifying. You know, if you look at the literature from maybe 15 years ago, at that time, obviously, the vast majority of students were going to you know, the US, UK, and places like Canada and Australia were kind of emerging as, as destinations. And there's this kind of, it's almost like a, an axiom in, in the literature that international students are wealthy and kind of socially privileged members of the global middle class. But when we look at the kind of students that are coming from the African continent to China, that's that's really not the case. And that's also kind of demographic profile of students is, is a little bit different to places like the UK and, and the US and mm-hmm. Canada, Australia. These students are not invariably wealthy and privileged. So I'd say in most cases, they're kind of members of the middle class in their home countries. But there's an important distinction to be made between a kind of precarious middle class, you know, in, for example, Nigeria, Ghana, somewhere like that, and the kind of global middle class. So families that are kind of affluent on on a global level. So kind of students that maybe you would see in the US and in the context of the US. So maybe they're coming from East Asia, somewhere like that. South Asia, but even in the context of the US, they're still wealthy. So these students might be kind of somewhere in the middle in their home country, but on a global scale, not particularly wealthy. And then I think it used to be more common, but in recent years, there was a lot of students in particularly in places like Guangzhou and in uh, Zhejiang province, where there's you know a lot of trade, import, export. So they would really be primarily there to do business, but they maybe found it difficult to secure visas for the long term. So it's a being a student was the most practical option. And then similarly, there's students that are kind of looking after family businesses as well. So there's a few different studies um, that have come across those kinds of students. They are here to study, but with an eye to looking after a family business, which involves kind of the export of goods from China back to their home countries. Yeah, so so there are a lot of students on scholarships and some of those students are social elites. And that's kind of the reason why they've received the scholarship. So it's kind of a way to curry favor with uh, social elites in you know, those respective countries. But there's also a lot of students that receive the scholarships that are from quite disadvantaged backgrounds, even in the context of their home countries. You know, in some cases, they might not even have been able to study in a university in their home country, never mind studying abroad. But at the same time, that's a smaller proportion. That's kind of a minority of the students. And actually, there's this misconception that most students in China from Africa are on scholarships, but actually the majority of them are not. The majority of them are self-financed. I mean, it sounds like you're you're saying that they aren't typically affluent, as you see in the students who yeah. are going to. The- so, so you could say that they're affluent in the context of their home country, but they're not you know, the elite, the one percent, but they're affluent enough that they can pay for their living costs in, in China. OK, OK. 
Yeah, interesting. So then where, let's go back to which countries are they coming from in Africa? One thing that's often asked is, is there some kind of relationship between how close the bilateral relationship is between the two countries and the number of students that go there? So for example, the Chinese government has quite a positive relationship with the Ugandan government. Does that mean that there's more scholarships that go to Ugandan students? Does that mean more Ugandan students are coming to China as a portion of the entire student population? About that, I'm kind of not sure. But in terms of raw numbers, most students are coming from Nigeria and Ghana. So there was 6,845 from Nigeria in 2018, 6,475 from Ghana. Then Tanzania, Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, those are among the larger countries by population on the continent. But it does also seem to be something going on there with the kind of the bilateral relationships So countries like Tanzania and Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, are kind of strategic allies of China. So, so maybe that's part of it. There's maybe it's also to do with the amount of trade and the, the number of infrastructure projects that are going on as well in, in those countries undertaken by, by Chinese state-owned enterprises. You're speaking to the why is this going on. So we have China. They have a lot of international students coming from larger African countries in terms of population. They tend to be, demographically speaking, not as wealthy in the global context. They're not all on scholarships. So that's another thing you brought up. Why is China recruiting then specifically from Africa? You've alluded to these different potential political relationships and also the the trade that might be going on. I know that in some of your work, you've looked at specifically that that relationship with Uganda as well. So, I mean, maybe maybe there's an example or a case that we can point to or to speak more specifically to why why is China trying to recruit from the African yeah. continent? So there's a few different discourses flying around. So the one the Chinese government likes to forward in its for China-Africa cooperation is kind of a South-South mutual benefit, win-win diplomacy, that kind of thing. Then closely related to that is kind of the soft power rationale. Yeah, we can talk more about whether that's really a realistic thing and whether, you know, whether this is having the kind of effect that the Chinese government would, would want it to. When I say soft power, that basically means having a the student flow would have a positive impact on general attitudes, and particularly among elites in their students' respective home country. But I think, you know, looking at the bigger picture, why is China's soft power in Africa so important to China? So a good way of looking at it is understanding China's broader drive to, to improve relations with Africa. So why is China doing that? So there's a few reasons, the main one being, really broadly speaking, like a spatial fix to China's own problems and its own economic system. So a kind of temporary solution to Chinese capitalism's drive to resolve its kind of inner crisis tendencies by geographical expansion. So this student mobility is kind of best understood as one small part of a broader strategy for engagement with the continent, which is a solution to some of the challenges that the Chinese economy is facing. So basically, this, this student recruitment, it's tied into several facets of this economic engagement. So for example, resource extraction is really important. Votes in the UN General Assembly, China really relies on votes from African countries. Then just export of goods. So, so Africa is kind of an emerging market for, for Chinese goods. And more recently as well as China's military cooperation in Africa and the development of, of military bases. So this is part of that. So improving relations in order to achieve all of those things. That's kind of the, the, the thing that's underpinning this drive to recruit um, students from Africa in particular. So the assumption is that some of these students will go on to be political elites. 
some of these students will go on to be you know, journalists or business or working in high levels in, in businesses in, in these countries. And that will just contribute to improving relations and contributing to solving China's kind of global, political and economic quandaries, the, the, the situations that it finds. Sure. It, it finds creates it. allies for them, essentially. Yeah. And yeah, things like votes in the UN General yeah. Assembly, which is, which is really important. Yeah. So and that's kind of, you know, when, when you hear about a soft, a soft power rationale for student recruitment, that's generally, you know, what it means, whether we're talking about China or, or somewhere else. So. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting because normally when I think about that particular reasoning behind student recruitment or, or student exchange, right, is kind of um, you want students to your students to understand what's going on in another country, or you want the incoming students to understand your country. And I, I usually think of it, and I don't know if this applies for other people as well, but I usually think of it in kind of a bilateral sense. And I don't know why that is exactly. Maybe it's the background I, I come from or, or such, but pointing out that it's, it's also about the UN decisions. It is about bilateral relationships, but it's yeah. also about kind of a broader sort of collective. I mean, really putting it at the international level. It is about trade, but it's not just about trade in a sense. Yeah. So there's it ties into this kind of gra- like almost like a geopolitical grand strategy. But that kind of reminds me of another point that I wanted to make. The Chinese government, in general, they frame their educational aid in the form of higher education scholarships as kind of an alternative to a kind of patriarchal, neocolonial, Western form of, of education aid. So, so that's quite important in understanding, you know, at least the way that it's framed. And there's this emphasis on two-way exchange. So that's a, a phrase that's used a lot, win-win diplomacy. But then when you look at what's actually happening on the ground, there's some issues with, especially with the idea of two-way exchange, just because it's... It seems quite one way, which is in a way it's inevitable when one of the partners is you know, more industrialized than than another, or you know geopolitically is much more powerful and influential than another, and it has a, is in a much higher position within the kind of global global political economy. So so it's never really going to be exactly two way or, or win win. Mm-hmm. So someone's already. Gonna, always going to be winning more than somebody else and and it's going to be the more powerful partner. This could be just because I'm finishing up my thesis, so I'm in the state of mind at the moment at this time of recording, but I'm thinking very much about resources, you know, where the resources concentrated. So who has the power to kind of leverage them? And I could see that that also contributing to how it's going to lean one way versus another in a lot of cases. I mean, does this mean that there's any resistance to China's recruitment of international students in any parts of I mean, Africa? Yeah, not really, because it's, there's other other forms of cooperation, as it's termed by, by China, that are, are the subject of, of resistance, like infrastructure projects. There's been a lot of controversy about the standard gauge railway in, in Kenya, and yet there's other infrastructure projects where, you know, there's been resistance to China's involvement and the, the opacity of the kind of lending conditions of the loans that they were financed by, things like that. But with this, it's a little bit more straightforward. While there isn't like a two-way exchange, there's no Chinese students going to Africa. There's no, there's not much learning about African cultures in, in China, whereas there's, you know, lots of Confucius institutes, things like that across the African continent. But in another sense, these students are getting these scholarships to go and study abroad. And, and that's kind of a good thing for them. It's hard, it's hard to kind of see that as a, as a bad thing. So I don't see why, I don't think anybody would, would choose to 
kind of choose that as a hill to die on. <laughs> I, I agree. And I think also the very kind of international internationalization mindset is also that, you know, the none of that is bad. The 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 yeah. in terms of um any student a student from Uganda or a student from Ghana going to China and regardless of whether it's funded or not, I mean that's it's a good thing. I think is kind of the general consensus that students are getting that exposure. It's just an interesting thing because I think it kind of speaks to it, how you think about what winning means, basically. And it is kind of win-win. It's just maybe one one country is winning in a different way. Or, yeah. or <laughs> you know, it's hard to quantify yeah. who's benefiting more. Both are benefiting to some extent, yeah. Apart from scholarship opportunities, why do students from Africa decide to study in China? It's always kind of a bit difficult to talk about the African continent as a whole. So it sounds a bit strange when I'm saying some of these things, but China is the largest trading partner for the continent as a whole. So that's really important. So across most contexts, you'll find China's a really China's a really important trading partner, which means it's kind of like a niche skill. If I can learn Chinese, if I can understand you know, a bit about Chinese culture, that's kind of a, a skill that will be valued for its rarity in my home country when I go back. So em employment advantage, that's one thing. There's also state-owned enterprises that are working on big infrastructure projects, although that seems to be kind of dying down a little bit. I was just reading a paper mentioned that basically the the amount of loans and and that that are being taken out by African countries from China is actually seems to have peaked and it, it's going down now. So maybe we'll see less of that. For students on scholarships, it might be the only option that they have to study overseas, and it might be preferable to studying in their home country. The barriers to studying in a lot of the other main destination countries are there are a lot more of them. So obviously, tuition fees are relatively low. Um, depending on where you are in China, the living costs are much lower than in you know the UK, US, Japan, anywhere like that. And relative to other emergent destination countries, the quality of the education system seems to be perceived to be a bit higher. So relative to other countries like maybe Malaysia or, or Turkey. And obviously, the availability of scholarships is important. About 11 or 12% of students have uh, get scholarships as, as of pre-pandemic anyway. So that's an important factor for a lot of students. Then there's stuff on, on the African side that mean that there's a higher rate of outbound mobility for education in African countries than any than in Europe or in, in Asia. So just the fact that there was a kind of lack of investment in the higher education sector in across the continent due to World Bank policies and emphasis on primary and secondary education and, this, and the perception that higher education is not that important comes later. It's kind of an ongoing effect of, of those policies. So just an underdevelopment, lack of capacity, too many young people and not enough university places, which means it's super competitive, it's quality problems. You know, for example, in Nigeria, there's a really high rate of outbound mobility just because there's so many young people, really limited spaces in universities. And then within the universities, there's all of these ongoing quality issues, um, industrial disputes, which so in, in Nigeria, there's basically lecturers going on strike often. So students are increasingly kind of looking abroad. And that's not just the case in Nigeria, but in, in a lot of those countries where there's a lot of students going to China, you know, partly just to do with that. And China represents a good option because of those, those links that I mentioned. I have two questions to follow up. The first one, what about Northern Africa? I mean, uh, the countries that you named, if I'm remembering correctly, are all in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, is this really kind of a sub-Saharan Africa sort of exchange or is there also much going on in the northern part of the continent? 
I think because those countries, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, places like that, are slightly more developed, inverted commas, the middle class in those countries might, they may have more options. Traditionally, France has been the major destination country for those students, obviously because of the colonial relationship, the fact that a lot of those students can already speak French. Students from those countries still do go to China. So, for example, there was around 2,500 students from Morocco studying in, in China in 2018, but that's quite a small number. So basically, they have more options. And then there's other options in the Middle East as well. So uh, Turkey's emerging as a major destination country. And obviously, the fact that there's a cultural kind of affinity there, Turkey, Islamic country, as are, as are those countries, that's that's an important factor. So I think a lot of those students would choose that they have other options. And obviously, Turkey's closer. There's also like UAE as well is emerging as like a, a hub. Um, so that's another option for those students. So basically, they have more options. So there's fewer of them, but there are there are still students from places like yeah Egypt, Libya, Morocco, Algeria in in China. So then there are there a lot of students who go and they, they study in China, do they end up staying? Do we have any concept of or do most of them head back home? So China is quite different as a destination country. So when you know if we're looking at this from a, a western perspective, we might assume that those students might be viewed by the Chinese government as a means of kind of plugging gaps in the labor market or, you know, it's, it's been in the news recently, China's kind of decline, low birth rate, declining population. It might, it might be seen as a solution to those problems as it is in places like Australia, Canada. So there's there's pathways for students to transition into the labor market. Not really a thing in China for a lot of reasons. So China's not really a country with a history of mass immigration. I think part of it is a lot of students don't want to stay for that reason. It's very, very difficult, impossible for most people to really fully integrate. I think it's the same in a lot of kind of most you know, highly collectivist societies. Like I've heard similar things about Japan, mm. um, where students kind of would, would find it quite difficult to, to live there permanently. Yes, and there's issues like racism and things like that, that that kind of contribute to students wanting to return home. The other part of it is I think it's quite difficult, particularly for students, to put it bluntly, that aren't white to enter the labor market in China, even if they have even if they speak fluent Chinese. I think there's discrimination issues. But also there's the, the policies aren't in place to give students. I mean, technically they are, they were introduced recently. I think in practice, it's quite difficult for students to actually find a position in, in a company in, in China. Um, although it does happen, and, and particularly international companies, it is possible for students to work for some time in those companies that have offices in, in China, then, then they plan to return home later. But I think it's, it's really rare for students to want to stay for a long time after they've graduated. I mean, to the point of maybe it's not being really being practiced at this time, I know that in China, the, the recent graduates of college themselves are having a hard time finding work that they want to engage in after getting these higher degrees of learning. So it seems like maybe there is kind of it's not that there aren't jobs available in China in that scenario. From what I have gathered through different kind of news sources, it sounds like it's really just, you know, students of Chinese students in China have gone through higher education, gotten a bachelor's degree. And then yeah. they don't find something that they can really do with it. There's there's jobs that they didn't need a bachelor's degree for, essentially, which yeah. are open. So that's that's also true, you know, in the last couple of years, there's just not space in the labor market. But at the same time, I don't think that African graduates of Chinese universities would be competing for the same kind of jobs. Mm. It's kind of two separate issues, but definitely related. 
But at the same time, quite a common thing is for African students to go home and then work for a Chinese company, Chinese state-owned enterprises, small private Chinese businesses. So that's really common. So there's still a link, but they're just not in the country. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So then what do you think is change? I mean, is there anything changing? You mentioned that, you know, there's this new policy kind of saying, OK, you can you can stay and work after you graduate, but that's not really being practiced yet. And you mentioned you just read an article that the infrastructure development that is kind of Chinese backed is starting to decline just a little bit. What's going to happen to these student flows yeah. potentially <laughs> moving forward? Uh, we yeah, won't hold you to any of your crystal ball out here. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's two ways of kind of looking at it so you know the one way of thinking about it it feels like there's a little bit of a chinese retrenchment from from africa obviously there's china's experiencing economic problems and economic downturn so there's something called the um, forum on china africa cooperation summit that happens every few years a certain number, a specific number of scholarships are pledged and the chinese government tends to have met those pledges as well so huge huge numbers of scholarships but in the most recent form of China cooperation, which did take place in 2021 during the pandemic, so this might be part of the reason why, but there was no commitment to a specific number of scholarships. So does that suggest that there'll be fewer scholarships in the future, or is that just a result of kind of the uncertainty of the pandemic? We don't really know yet. It's kind of the picture's still emerging. From what I've seen, the Chinese government is still offering scholarships, but we just don't know how many yet. So if you go to, you know, Chinese embassy in South Africa, you might see that 300 and something students receive scholarships this year, but we don't really know what the bigger picture is. So it's one way of looking at it. So Chinese lending to Africa has now peaked um, and it's in decline. So we'll see mobility decline in the future. And also other indicators of economic engagement have, have decreased. And there's a renewed kind of interest of other, pow other powers like the US in Africa. And we might that might kind of have an influence on student mobility as well. So there's kind of a renewed push in the, in the US for engagement with, with Africa. But on the other hand, I think in terms of the future of student mobility between Africa and China, we just need to think about, you know, is Africa still important to China? Will Africa still be important to China in, in 10 years, in 20 years time? The answer is obviously yes. So in terms of all of the things that we mentioned, like the export of goods, the extraction of natural resources, military access, votes in the UN General Assembly, trade between the two places that, that drives the mobility from, from the African side. Will, it, will those things kind of really dramatically become less important? I think the answer is no. And therefore, I think we'll continue to see a lot of African students choosing China. In terms of scholarships, the number of scholarships might go down. But as I said, most students are self-financing anyway. So I'm not that that'll, you know, that can only impact 12% of, of the total number. So yeah, I mean, the jury's out, but I think it's, it's likely to kind of continue. And I mean, another thing to mention is, so obviously racism has always been problem there was in in nanjing in, in i think 1988 or 89 there was anti-african riots and the first kind of cohort of, of african students that went to the people's republic of china the majority of them left the country in protest against the mis mistreatment that they received but that became more kind of there's there's now more international awareness of that due to what happened in the pandemic Mm -hmm. So there was, it was kind of on the BBC and, and in lots of um, African uh, media outlets about the mistreatment of Africans and the perception that Africans are bringing the coronavirus to, to China. They were kind of thrown out of hotels, not allowed in, to enter businesses and malls and hospitals. 
So that could also have an impact in the longer term. This is now more awareness that, yeah, if, if you go to China, you might experience racism. So again, it's kind of unclear because China opened quite recently what impact that's going to have in the long term. But, you know, that might make people think twice about studying in, in China. But at the same time, may, maybe it won't. So Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Just curious, when we were talking about African students staying in China, it made me think about what are what are some of the experiences that these students have when they're in China might make them want to stay or make them want to leave or, or maybe be neutral. But I know that you've done some research around this. So if there's yeah. one or two key points that you want to speak to. So in terms of experiences, it's huge variation because it's a very diverse group um, that are going. You know, there's a lot of Chinese universities that are able to accept international students and they're very different. Obviously, students who are attending university in a, at somewhere like Beijing University, Fudan University, their experiences will be very different than somebody who's, you know, at a, a small kind of less well-known university in a smaller city. And some, obviously, some universities like those large universities are much more set up to receive foreign students. China's not a country with a history of immigration. And for that and other reasons, that means racism is, is kind of an issue for students. That's kind of one of the, in, not just in my research, but in a lot of the other research that's been done on this topic, that theme comes through really strongly in the accounts of students. Just, just quite overt racism from lecturers and in the local community. Like a really common one was, oh, people don't want to sit near me on the bus or on the subway, that that kind of thing. Or, you know, my lecturer made an ignorant comment about Africa or about black people. Yeah, so so that's a really common issue. Another thing is the kind of siloing of international students. So it doesn't work in the same way as it works, you know, for example, in, in Norway or you know here in the UK, where all, all the students are together. So usually international students and local students are totally separate. They live in separate dormitories. They take separate courses, not always, but a lot of the time. So that's kind of a really important, really important for the experiences of, of students because there's you know less chance to interact with, with uh, locals. And it's already hard sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and there's, already... there's already that big cultural yeah. gap a lot of the time and that that makes it more difficult. So there's not much opportunity to mix, I think. and what I found from my research is that any attempt by the universities at kind of encouraging mixing is quite limited and quite superficial. And it's kind of based on emphasizing difference rather than similarity. So, you know, these guys are from this X country and tell us about your country. We'll tell us about, we'll tell you about our, our country and we'll work out what the differences are rather than, you know, maybe a more, a different kind of mode of, of interaction that doesn't emphasize what's so different. But, and that's also kind of overridden by the fact that students are in d different dormitories studying different things so so it's difficult yeah so so those are things that i i think are important in terms of experiences and it's hard to speak to kind of academic experiences just because they're so varied some students are quite positive others are quite negative and it really it really varies hugely from university to university from subject to subject one common thing is often the students are sold kind of english language programs which motivates them to go and then you know obviously there's just not enough. There's not enough people who are experts in a particular field and also fluent enough in English to give a course with all that technical language and, and stuff like that in English. So it ends up, it's like a bait and switch. And a lot of the students end up having to study in Chinese or having uh, lecturers that just can't communicate clearly in, in English. So that ends up being a problem. Well, Ben, thank you so much for talking to us about this topic yeah. today. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting because it's so high on people's minds. So it's really great to get your insight in, into the topic and understand it better, these, the, these flows. I want to take a couple minutes to ask you our final question, which we ask all of our guests, which is, who is someone 
or what was an experience which was particularly influential in your own higher education journey or in the development of your professional research? I don't know. At first I was thinking maybe there's like a theorist or something, somebody that was really influential on my work, but then I thought that would be a bit pretentious to say that. So, (laughs) I mean, I'm also going to not answer the question properly by saying two people. I mean, one person, there's a, a student that I have interviewed and worked with through my research on African students in China. And I was just really kind of inspired by his attitude he was, he was from kind of I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't mind me saying you know, quite a disadvantaged background he was one of 10 children as well I think he said and yeah he's now he's was, he was made his way to China he's now studying for on a master's program it's an Erasmus master's program in, in, in Europe and yeah we, we keep in touch regularly so I was just kind of it was like motivating to see you know him doing so well then the other person again just probably not very original and a bit corny but my my wife probably the most influential person on my kind of journey as an academic just because she kind of was the person that convinced me that I could actually you know do this and there was a lot of times and you know I still have have moments where I'm kind of doubting myself um, or doubting certain things about the research that I'm doing or you know something like that so she's always kind of offering support and advice really she's by far the most influential person on my own kind of academic journey I really enjoy those answers. We actually haven't heard those answers from anyone yet. Oh, yeah, I was wondering whether other people would say something more academic than that. No, no, <laughs> no. It's it's quite open-ended. Maybe once or twice we've had academic answers. Yeah. But what I love about your answers uh, are, of course, our partners are in our lives and our family members, the people who are closest to us are those support people. And that that's so important. But also just how important for the those of us who do qualitative research where we're interviewing people and kind of getting to know people's stories that's also so important to our work and uh, yeah. for me it's kind of sometimes it's the most motivating factor yeah. of a project well, exactly yeah and we yeah we wouldn't be able to do what we do without those people so exactly yeah, yeah. so ben thank you so much for the conversation today yeah thank you for having me yeah and, and inviting me it's been a pleasure If you liked what you listened to on Thesis today, please follow the podcast and feel free to leave us a rating or comment. Links to relevant work by our guests and their contact information can be found in the show notes. Today's Thesis episode does not take a position on the issues discussed on the podcast. Opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of the guests or hosts. This podcast is produced and edited by Ekaterina Korinska, Maria Angeles Hidalgo, Ayla Rubenstein, Tracy Waldman, Kelly Davis, Liliana Sofia Riano Sanchez, and Petar Vujicic. Original music is produced by Petter Strom. This podcast was recorded at Helga Engshus at the University of Oslo's Faculty of Educational Sciences. Thanks to IDEA, Innovation and Digitalization in Educational Arenas, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for listening to Thesis. We'll talk to you next time.